Hey, this is Alex Shaw, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. I tell you that pity. It may be hard to imagine now, but not long ago, coffee shops didn't exist. When we opened, there was no other coffee shop doing what we were doing in Georgetown. There's only maybe one or two other in Washington, D.C. Coffee in America before the Starbucks era was about being cheap, uniform, and plentiful. Think of the free refills at diners. Mass-producing coffee that, you know, kind of just tastes like uniform, that has no flavor characteristics, you need to pour a ton of milk and sugar. That's the coffee that we were drinking in America um, up until, you know, the 90s. Then bean roasters like Pete's in the Northwest started distributing gourmet roasted coffee, giving rise to an expanding palette of coffee quality and tastes. Coffee that wasn't just Folgers. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak to Tessa Velasquez, one part of the family that has owned and operated a coffee shop and bakery in Georgetown for 20 years. Baked and Wired is the Velasquez's first store started by Tessa's parents, Tony and Teresa. My parents opened Baked and Wired uh, in, in 01, in April of 01. More recently, the family opened a baked joint on the other side of downtown D.C., followed by their first restaurant, A La Betty, next door. Zach and I, my, my older brother, we were, we were kids. We grew up in the shop, of course. I was a kid, but I was always in the back. I was always making stuff. I was rolling cookie dough balls. I was, you know, my first job was at the register. We talk about how Tessa's family has been able to stay open during the pandemic, which has devastated other local businesses. Of course, sales are down, but not as down as we thought they'd be. Tessa shares her recipe for the stress of not just being in a food service business, but doing it with family. And when we we butt heads, you know, we also just learn to be incredibly honest. And yeah, of course, it gets difficult sometimes. We, you know, we're all different people. At the end of the day, we're all very passionate about this. We talk about stress baking during the pandemic. And one of my favorite recipes from Tessa's baking blog. You have to talk about your your lemon bluebe pound cake. You've invented a word here. I'm interested in the story. (laughs) I have the basic pound cake recipe that my mom actually started with that she has substituted and made all of her different pound cakes with. And dive into the subject of flour and the growing enlightenment in this country about the health problems with industrialized versions. If any of us have been fortunate to go to Europe, go to France, like why are these people eating bread all the time? They're not fat. They look amazing. Tessa reveals the secrets of her brother's passion for brewing coffee with a rare customized machine he calls the Slayer. We have full control over the whole brewing process. No one else has this machine but us. Welcome to episode nine of The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is Baked and Wired, DC's Velasquez family, celebrating 20 years in business. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Americans, and particularly Washingtonians, love their coffee and they love cafes. You only have to look at the monopoly that Starbucks has created worldwide to see this phenomenon. But is the era of big coffee over? 
That's the question I'm posing today. Is it possible that artisanal boutique coffee shops could be clawing back into the Green Giants market share the way craft breweries have surprised behemoth beverage conglomerates? That's where the Velasquez family has a unique edge. With their locally beloved coffee outposts, baked and wired, located in the Georgetown neighborhood, and a baked joint situated near Chinatown. They have shown over their 20 years of growth that their personal touches can be very successful in a crowded market. In 2019, the Velasquez family, Tony and Teresa, and their adult children, Tessa and Zach, opened La Betty, restaurant next door to a baked joint. Today, Tessa Velasquez joins me on The Soul of Life to talk about their success taking a stab at big coffee in this caffeine-fueled city, surviving as a boutique cafe and restaurant during the pandemic. And of course, we'll talk about some of your favorite things like baking and bread and flour and sweets and our relationship to the work that we do and the art of food. Tessa Velasquez, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Keith. So great to be here. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, tell me a little bit about your family. And it's as I've gotten to know uh, about your restaurants um, and your stores, it's been interesting to see that this is a family-run business for 20 years and it's been successful. So tell me Mm -hmm. about the story of how you got started in your family. Sure. Yeah. Baked and Wired is turning 20 in April. Uh, We all can't even believe that. It's been a long run. Thank you. Uh, So my parents opened Baked and Wired uh, in, in 01, in April of 01. And, uh, Zach and I, my, my older brother, we were, we were kids and, and we grew up in the shop. And the story behind it was my, my parents had always worked in Georgetown. My dad is an architect by trade and he had a firm in Georgetown just up the street. And uh, my mom worked in the office as well. And that's how they met. And they've always worked together, always worked in Georgetown. And then they opened a, a little copy graphic shop called Zap in the same place where Baked and Wired is now. And uh, they did that for many years. They, they knew Georgetown. They worked there. They spent so much time there. And they were just seeing there was no place to get a good cup of coffee in there. And actually, Starbucks was starting around that time. Um, more importantly, there was no place to get a good baked good. It was still getting like the cellophane wrap baked good from Costco. You know, it was... Uh, no one was doing homemade baked goods in Georgetown. And everyone they talked to was like, we just like, where are we going to go? We want to get coffee. We want to get baked goods. And so my mom grew up baking for her big family. And my dad's always just been very entrepreneurial and always grew up drinking coffee in his house since he was a little, little kid. Um, and so with no background, with no restaurant experience, with, um, you know, it wasn't even some lifelong dream to open a bakery someday. They were just kind of like, let's do it. Uh, let's, let's open it within Zap. Uh, at that point, you know, in, in the late nineties, early two thousands, people were starting to get that equipment in their offices as well. So that kind of business was going down a little bit. It was kind of getting over its heyday um, and they were looking for their next venture. So it all kind of was the perfect storm to open Baked and Wired, which was actually, if you're familiar with Baked and Wired, there's kind of the bake side and the wired side. All of Baked and Wired was just in the wired side where you get your coffee. That was where everything went. And it kind of explains a lot of how the menu is the way it is too, because it needed to be really like grab and go stuff. It was all takeout. You know, it was really just catered to the office people. It closed at 5 or 6 p.m. It wasn't open on weekdays and just kind of naturally organically grew um, to to be open longer hours, be open on the weekends, to have tourists come. Like None of that was expected. It was really meant to be for 
the office people like my mom and dad and you know get them caffeinated, get them a baked good after their lunch and send them on their way. And it just really organically evolved. So it's been a really cool journey um, to grow up in that for, for my brother and I and be along for the journey and help open the second location of Bake Joint um, five years ago and then open Love Eddie, our restaurant. So uh, yeah, 20 years of, of, in a way, working together. Yes, of course, I was a kid, but I was always in the back. I was always making stuff. I was rolling cookie dough balls. I was, you know, my first job was at the register, learned to be a barista, learned to be a manager. So everything I've learned has You've been through You've kind of done it businesses. all, right? I've washed dishes. I've, I've done everything. I've been a tech support. I've been, you know, taking special orders. I've been in the kitchen, everything. So it's been... And that's um, the thing that's so mm-hmm. impressive. I think after 20 years, I walked in today at lunch and got a quiche and got a whole bunch of things that I enjoyed this afternoon. We're, like my stomach's going to be growling by the time we're done with this because <laughs> I'm going to want to go finish that quiche. But... No, you're busy with an issue that came up. And so your dad's there. I was chatting with with him, with mm-hmm. Tony, and mm-hmm. asking him about what's going on. And and you're all right there. You're very yeah. accessible. Everyone's, you know, so it's mm-hmm. really, you're putting yourself out there. Um, mm-hmm. You you studied, what did you study in school? And, and, and when did you decide that you're going to stay in the business? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up, like I was saying, all in baked ware and all my jobs were there. I went to Boston University. I studied psychology. I think that really rooted my whole life. I was running around the shops. I was very customer facing. I loved interacting with people. So I knew there was something with people, helping people. I loved that aspect of working there. Um, and I'd come back every summer, of course, and work. I had jobs in Boston working at coffee shops. And I loved it. I loved being in those shops. I loved making coffee. I loved talking to new people, making friends that way. Um, and I graduated and the next step uh, for me was, you know, do I go to grad school? What kind of grad school? Am I going for a PhD? Am I going to be out in school? Which is kind of what I was thinking at the time. I wanted a PhD. I was going to be in school for, you know, like seven plus years or any grad school, several years of my life to dedicate. I was young and I was like, you know, I've always loved these businesses. Why don't I just move back to DC, try it out, learn small business. Uh, if I don't like it in a year, I'll go to school. Great. I tried it. Um, and you know that was almost ten years ago. So <laughs> that, Here you like, are. I loved it. And um, you know, I tell people psychology was a big part in that too. It's it's it was really cool learning more about people. It's such a people business. Yes, we're selling food, but we're we're selling experience. We're selling customer service. We're it's it's in the back end. It's dealing with a lot of different types of people. All types of people work at coffee shops. All types of people work at bakeries, and all types of people come and. And and purchase from bakery, so it's like learning how to talk to those people. And uh, right. so I really these are to... things you can't always learn in business school somewhere. Exactly, exactly. So it was really when I look back at that, it made sense that I went to study psychology because of how I grew up, and then made sense that I went back and did what I did because I really took those skills and personal skills and understanding people and empathy and um, right. all those skills you really need uh, to, I think, to be a good leader, and especially this type of business where you're just dealing with so many different type of people um, and and how to really, you know, effectively talk to them and lead and empathize. And um, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, and, and we can dig into that a little bit today as, as far mm-hmm. as how you operate kind of the ethos and the values in your mm-hmm. company and, and also your family. We're going to get to sort of how you deal with stress in the family. And that's not an easy thing to deal with over, no, over time. That'll, but that'll be a fun topic, yeah. That's an interesting, <laughs> right, an interesting question to ask. But um. You know, how are you doing during COVID? This, you know, mm. a lot of restaurants have closed. I think restaurants have been one of the most, if not the hardest hit for sure. Yeah. And, and in coffee shops, especially when you're depending on mm-hmm. people to come in, not just mm-hmm. get it and go. 
But their people aren't even coming into their offices. They're just starting mm-hmm. to come back now. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah. in a busy place in Georgetown where there's a lot of foot traffic during the day, a lot of street traffic coming in and out. And if people aren't going out, mm-hmm. they're not coming in, right? So mm-hmm. how are you dealing with it? It's been interesting. It's been a real testament to the community I think we've built in Washington. Um, you're right. I mean, our weekday was really centered around uh, Georgetown. I think not many people would know, but is very there's a lot of office buildings. Most people think Georgetown, oh, cute. I'm going to go walk around there. But weekdays with all of our regular customers who work in the neighborhood who come in twice a day, weekends were all tourists, people coming into Washington, D.C. and the lines out the door, people at least who live you know outside the city or this is their special trip. So we had no idea what to expect, but we have been, of course, sales are down, but not as down as we thought they'd be. And just the people who rely on this kind of food as, as nurturing and as comfort and as a way to show love. I did an episode a, a few t- well, a little while ago on, on recreational mm-hmm. drug use, so MDMA, and I'm going to do one on mar- marijuana coming up. And I was just curious about the, if there's any double entendre intended in baked and wired, and then you've got you know, a, baked, a, a baked joint, and then you've got a, the name of some of your food, uh, what's it mm-hmm. called, crack for, crack mm-hmm. for hippies. <laughs> Yep, yep. Got the you, drug theme going. You got you got our little subtle uh, cue there. Yeah, it, it really just started as a, a very playful. I mean, and this was really when we started kind of playing with this. Baked and wired is really, of course, like just baked goods, you know? Sure. And wired. And then it wasn't until later, and maybe it was when, honestly when I was a teenager and I was like, oh, that's funny, like get baked. And they... um and uh, you know, in playing on the the marijuana aspect of it, and and we actually have get baked trademark, if you can believe it. So get baked is one is one of our logos. So it's always been um, part of the fun. This was also during a time now it's more widely talked about, you know, and people are are really um, exploring and accepting the medicinal effects of a lot of psychedelic drugs and and definitely marijuana. But at that time, it was really tongue in cheek. So that was our way of just like pushing the boundaries, being playful. But to be clear, people are not coming for baked brownies with something special in the ingredients. No. We still no. get people a couple times a year who actually do come and say they want that. And we have to explain to them that we don't actually have those, but that the brownies are so good that you'll feel you're high, even though there's nothing in them. But there you go. And maybe <laughs> if you open a, a location in Asheville, North Carolina, maybe, maybe you could get that done somehow. Yeah. I don't know. Back to your the food and restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think the era of Starbucks is over? I don't think so. I mean, I think it has its place. It has its it's it's dependable. It's reliable. You go in, you know exactly what you're getting. Um, you need that caffeine boost, go for it. But I do think it's been very cool seeing the third wave coffee really take over. So um, like I said, when, when Baked Wired opened, I think Starbucks was, I, and I so much credit to Starbucks for this, was the first wave of, of third wave coffee, of getting coffee that wasn't just Folgers. Um, and say and more now, about that term if you can, third, oh, the sure. third wave. Oh, yes. Sure, sure. So third wave coffee is really using um, sourced beans that are and, and actually been roasted and using from a specific company and, and roasting it and getting the right flavors out, not just mass producing coffee that, you know, kind of just tastes like uniform that has no flavor characteristics, each a poor ton of milk and sugar. That's the coffee that we were drinking in America um, up until, you know, the 90s um, and really exploded in the early 2000s. So like 
in the you know around 2000 when we opened baked and wired really started to come up so like i'd say 2003 um to 2010 is that getting to be more popular and now of course uh, to what you're you're pointing out that's that's everywhere there's coffee shops everywhere and we open there was no other coffee shop doing what we were doing in georgetown there's only maybe one or two other in washington dc um that we were looking to for inspiration as well. So it is a new era. I think what people, people's flavor palettes have developed, you know, they're, if you like coffee, you're going to one of these coffee shops because you really want to taste the coffee, you know, Starbucks, you're not really, it's just, you know, it's going to do the trick, you know, exactly. You're going to go, you're going to get it. You're going to get your order. If you really like a sweet drink and you want to have the, you know, Frappuccino with the whipped cream, great. Like, you want to have a pumpkin (laughs) exactly but if you really like coffee which more people have been way more interested in coffee you're going to go to one of these shops like ours um Mm -hmm. and if you're looking for the personal experience your coffee shops are such a community hub which is another reason that bake and wired opened and that we opened then a bake joint 15 years later was because it is so naturally placed that people over the test of time have come to a coffee or a tea house or bakery to gather to meet to uh, create ideas to have interactions, to have dates, to have, right. you know, to study, to do everything to together, to hear um, music, to, to music, meet new people. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you're getting definitely more of that at a place like Bates and Wire than a Starbucks too. So if you're looking for that, and I think people still at their heart are, and I think another thing COVID has taught me is, is that people still are still, I mean, miss that, they crave it. Even if it's, they're not going to the office, at least they were seeing their barista every day who knows their drink, who makes it. It's like, that's what you're getting at someplace like ours. I don't think Starbucks is going away. I think, you know, you're going to have, you're going to need your fix. We can't open a baked wire in an airport. You know, I don't want to. So like, great. You can go get your coffee. I'll probably get a, a Starbucks. Yeah. Once every two years, I get a Starbucks. <laughs> Sounds like you're saying you've kind of, you've ridden the wave that Starbucks has, has brought over this country and then, and then the globe, in fact. Um, well, the U.S. being late to catch up, I suppose, from Europe and the connoisseurs of coffee. But what kinds of coffee do you do you have? And, and can you kind of say, walk me through what the choices would be if somebody walks in? Sure. What what makes Big and Wired and Joint very unique is that we are a multi-roaster shop, meaning um, while we do not roast our own beans, which is a, another amazing, huge whole operation that shops have been doing more themselves, which is awesome. We don't roast our beans, but we are multi-roaster shops. So we are getting multiple roasters. So we're getting um, Intelligentsia out of uh, Chicago. We've been using them for probably six, seven, eight years, I'd say. Um, we are doing Blueprint um, out of St. Louis. We are doing Mountaineer out of Asheville. We are doing um, Sweet Bloom out of Denver. We are doing uh, Cafe Integral out of New York. Uh, and we're doing Lost Sock right here out of Washington, D.C. And my brother is the one who heads the coffee program. So he has this amazing palate. He's always tasting new coffees. He's always switching them out. So we have that right now, but we change it every few months. So we might we might keep some, some staples, but we also are getting new ones in. We do this this way because um, a couple of reasons. One, it's... We hire and train baristas who like, this is not just some part-time job they do while they're getting a degree. This is their career. This is like, Mm -hmm. as a sommelier is to wine, this is how we have our baristas. They are professionals and they love coffee and they breathe it and they love it. And how boring would it be for you to just dial in the same and taste and 
and prepare the same exact coffee every single day. It's so boring, right? So, mm-hmm. so we have all these different coffees because actually for each coffee, they need to adjust the settings. They need to adjust the water flow. They need to do the, adjust the grind, all of this to make that particular coffee taste good. So it's very engaging. Wow. You're tasting and you're, and you're changing. Yeah. Um, that's what makes really good coffee is, is adjusting it. That's also according to the weather on a humid day, you're going to have to adjust it a different way compared to a very cold day. Like today's a very cold day and it's going to constrict mm. more. So now that reminds me, tell me mm-hmm. about Zach and the Slayer. What is, what is, what is that? Ah, Zach and the this. Slayer. So we have um, a very fancy, amazing espresso machine called the Slayer, um, which is out of Portland. And it is um, all a completely custom machine. Um, what we have at Bake Noir is what most shops have. It, we have a La Marzocco, which is a semi-automatic machine. So if you look in the back, we still have to do everything by hand, but we're also pressing um, a button at the end of the day that pulls the water through. What's different about this layer, first of all, it looks cool. Like Zach picked out all the fixing, has these cool wooden handles. You got to pick out all the colors. No one else has this machine but us. We're going to get a picture. We'll put that up. Yeah, cool. Uh, And he had to go there to like to learn how Mm -hmm. to work it. There's not, there's no technicians even. Whereas Mm -hmm. most, most of these espresso machines, because it's so popular now, you you call someone you have an issue. This, you really have to know how to work the machine. And Zach, that's Zach. Um, Mm -hmm. If, if it breaks down, no one's coming to fix it because uh, huh. we're the only one who has it. Um, and there's a couple of these around DC as well. Once you know, you'll notice. But what's cool about this one is we have full control over the whole brewing process. So we control exactly when we um, when we let more water in, um, how much of it is dripping out at a time. So we have a full control, which makes it very tricky to work with, but also very exciting if you are a coffee professional because mm-hmm. you have that control. You can make it taste even better because it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's really then super unique to each coffee. And how we right. how the baristas look at that is so many metrics. There's weight there's time and it's also it's a looking it's a visual process it's a tasting process it's human very human right taking it's very the, the human machine out of it the, and even the computer yeah even the, even within this nice machine it's it's not nice because it's doing everything for you it's actually nice because it's giving you the freedom to make all these choices yourself Manual ch- changes the yeah. computer exactly is, is you're gonna have the same it's like it's, it's not going to taste great it's gonna give you the, gonna taste the same and then to yeah. your point about people i think want people are always going to want a human product Mm-hmm. Right, so something mm-hmm. that a human touched, and whether it's handmade goods, it reminds me of how the beer industry, the Goliaths like Anheuser Busch, InBev, and Miller Coors. I think I don't know if they saw this wave coming, like over mm-hmm. the last ten and fifteen years of craft breweries, like taking away a big chunk of their market share because people, people like you guys, if if we kind of run the parallel here, you know, individual breweries are popping up saying we want to. Devote, devote our life to making a specific mm-hmm. kind of flavor. Mm-hmm. That's something that a big corporate um, company is not necessarily interested right. in. Right, right, exactly. It's that personal touch, and it, it definitely right. feels. I think on a customer base, obviously, tastes good. But if you you can see how much care they're putting into it, it makes you feel good. Right. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about work life separation. As you work with your family all the time, you've got and your mom. Tell me about your mom. Tell me who does what. You know, Zach. Oh, sure. Zach is running the coffee program. What does mm-hmm. your mom do, and what does mm-hmm. everybody do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Zach is running the coffee program, hiring the baristas, choosing the beans, um, doing the repairs, all of that. And he's also very much, um, you know, a manager and an owner too. So we all make these like vis- vis- visions for the company. Those decisions are all made together as a family. Um, and my dad is effective, we don't use titles, but effective CEO. So he uh, makes 
he he's the money guy. He makes all the like you know the major business decisions. Um, my mom, it's all of her recipes. So she's the head cooker of all locations. So it's all of her recipes for baked wine, all of her recipes for baked joint, and all of her recipes for La Betty. So she is really in the in the back of house in the kitchen. So today, mm-hmm. even uh, it you know it, it just so happened my whole family was as at was at Baking Warren when he stopped in. Um, my mom was actually in our commissary kitchen, was which is in Virginia, where we actually make everything, and she was in there. Still, she's in the kitchen. Still, I mean, we have a team, um, and she she oversees it, but she's still very involved in all the kitchens and making sure that everything's coming out perfectly. And uh, what's it like working with these people over 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 time? You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. people change over time, right? That's true in marriage. Mm-hmm. That's true in mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you guys handle when I can't imagine you agree on everything? How do you guys handle? No, yeah, a tough conversation. It's- it's interesting. I mean, we, it's good because we all kind of do our own thing. And I guess I should touch on too, I'm more like operations. Um, so, you know, whatever needs to be done, I'm kind of filling in the cracks in a lot of ways. So, uh, operations and training and, um, hiring important staff and tech and, you know, all of that, uh, website, social media oversight events, like blah, blah, blah. Credit card um, machine goes down. That's you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's great. We all kind of do our own thing, which I think is important in any business partnership. Um, and But when it comes to making the big, de- big decisions, we... Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two sides. One, that we trust each other immensely. So we're working with our family, uh, people that have a lot of trust. And that sort of dynamic has been lost over time um, for the reasons where it gets tough, you know, of course. But we have that trust. So we know we're all in it to make this place better. Um and when we we butt heads, you know, we also just learn to be incredibly honest, right? And, and incredibly honest of how we feel, how we think it's going to work, um, who, how should we make a decision? Having meetings, you know, that sort of thing are things we've had to develop on the way because when you're family, you just kind of talk about it at the dinner table, or you know, we've had to learn those things throughout throughout time. Right. Um, and yeah, of course, it gets difficult sometimes. We, you know, we're all different people. At the end of the day, we're all very passionate about this. We all wanted to succeed, and we all we all have very different people, two very different personality types. So, you know, with that, we all know each other's personalities. So, I think we've you learn to really how to broach a subject with someone. In the in the tone in the communication style that's good for them, you know when to draw the line and put your foot down. Um, you know when someone's just had a hard day, and that's where we're good at family. So they're having a hard day; they need to be left alone for a little bit. You know, <laughs> like those sort of things. Like it plays into each other, and it being tough. I was I was looking at the research recently on substance abuse risk because that's my field, mental health, and it's funny. Like it's not funny, but like the first, the highest risk group is mining. Like mm. min- mineral extraction, people who are in like digging a hole all day, oh. like they're they're highest at risk. Right next to them is people who work in a restaurant. There you for go. Risk, risk factors. I mean, you're constantly putting someone else first. You're mm-hmm. constantly pleasing someone else. Every, you know, the customer has to be right. Your boss has to be right. Making food just right. If people have watched the, these food shows and how much pressure can be in those kitchens. People like Anthony Bourdain kind of popularized this at his writing, like sort of behind this, behind the scenes, the sexism, the racism, the, you know, the macho, you know, the macho used to be really, a, I think, a men's world. Increasingly now it's more, you would know more about this, but apparently from what I've read, there's, there's more like 50-50 men and women coming into culinary schools now, but even uh, pastry chefs has always been apparently mostly women. So what changes are, are you seeing over the over the 20 years in kind of the, the work pool? 
Yeah, it's so interesting growing up in this and seeing, you know, I, I'm fortunate to have grown up seeing a very strong um, woman, my mother, as a role model uh, for leading business. Um, all that stuff is real. You know, all of those things are real. And I think um, as I've been reflecting on this, um, this topic you're broaching, I think there's a couple things that have come up that uh, we're, we're really on this new frontier for not only, yes, technically women coming, but a different type of leadership style as well um, that will be less less toxic. So what I mean is, um, one, I see Me Too and I see how hard that hit the restaurant industry. Yes, with uh, on the high end, the, the amount of sexual harassment and abuse happening, but as you're pointing out about Anthony Bourdain, it's also, it's a power thing in the toxic environments there. And that's why people are dro- dro- like we're, uh, addicted to drugs, are drinking, why it's such a horrible environment. Because exactly what you're saying, you're working in hot, yes, you're working yeah. in hot kitchens, you're working in the corner of a basement over at. a stove, being yelled at for a 12, 14 hour shift. You're doing that every single night, but one day a week. Um, and someone's yelling at you constantly, and that's been glorified. And yeah, those are men who are perpetuating that toxic environment. So with Me Too, it kind of brought down, yes, the sexual aspect of it, but also just the harassment and the abuse. And so you have that coming right before COVID. What's COVID hurting? It's hurting the mostly in the food business and, and is, is the bars and the fine dining or the, the more like the dining hall restaurant scene where the, most of this toxic behavior is happening. So then what I think is happening too, if you haven't closed, if you haven't adjusted, you know, all these people who unfortunately, sadly, been per- furloughed, laid off, and you, you're reading articles about them now who are starting to like make their own businesses, been so cool. Are they really going to want to go back to that place where that person yelled at them, where that mm-hmm. person made them work 12 hours? Or they realized through this that they can have work-life balance, that they can yeah. work hard, they can be creative, they don't have to have someone yelling at them, they don't have to work over a hot stove for 12 hours. I just think this is really going to change the game. And I it's think it's been such a disruptor, right? Everyone's gotten out of their normal roles yes. they play. Yes, exactly. And and I just cannot see um, the restaurant experience going back to that same way. Yes, will people eventually be back in dining rooms, a full, a full dining room, ordering dinner, sitting next to you know all their friends without masks? Yes, I totally see that's going to happen. I just think from the top down, it's going to look different and it's going to be more of a feminine leadership style. Um, yes, you could... You're, meet your man or your whatever. Um, you're not necessarily a woman, but you're, you're, the empathy is there. We've gone through yeah, this Yeah, empathy and compassion and compassion. Like, like presence and listening yes. to people. Yes, Take, exactly. Accepting influence. I mean, that's such a, in my yes. field, we know scientifically because we've studied marriage longitudinally for like mm-hmm. decades now, since the mm-hmm. 70s, 80s. And we know that marriages will succeed. Mm-hmm. And one single factor is, is basically shown to, to, you can kind of sample the marriage and kind of predict, or at least there's mm-hmm. some people who go out on a limb and say you can predict whether that marriage will be around in 10 years. If the man, and this is sort mm-hmm. of a, you know, it's it's a uh, stereotypical, it's you know, sort of, it's not inclusive necessarily, sample set, but if the man is able to accept influence from the female in the relationship, then you can wow. predict. So if he has the ability to empathize and listen and mm-hmm. um on important decisions, not just like little things. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's that's so that's... fascinating. And that's uh, these people you're working with, especially in food, or you're, you might as well be married to them. You're with them all mm-hmm. the time. Have you ever entertained um, Hollywood or I, I shouldn't say, I guess just Hollywood, but um, 
television or or film because one of my favorite mm-hmm. shows is called Chef's Table. Are you familiar with that? On, yes, on yes, love that show. The the uh, cinematography of food mm-hmm. is. I mm-hmm. mean, they take it to a, a beautiful new level, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But also the the way they craft the stories of each chef or mm-hmm. baker um, and go into detail on some of the personalities mm-hmm. and some of them mm-hmm. it's really ego driven. It's about perfection and it's, and you can see their life as a tightrope. It's sort of an mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain story and others. They're just like, you know, they're picking mushrooms mm-hmm. in the morning and, and they're going <laughs> to the market and then, you know, they'll see what they want to make in the afternoon. Have you ever considered that sort of thing? Or are you happy with sort of keeping a low profile? You know- not really. I mean, when all the like when Food Network was a big thing, like we've we've always been approached to do those like cupcake challenge or you know this and, and we've always been very guarded. Um, we really are. It's not an image. We are like a family DC institution, um, and we're careful with that. So I, I mean, something like Chef say, well, great. Yeah, if you know them, like. Have them call me. That would be wonderful. But um, I, I would love to watch that episode. It's such a you have such a great do. story. It's, I mean, right. I, yeah. This leads me to the second part of my what conversation. The conversation uh-huh. I want to have with you is about the food itself. Mm, um, I'll start off with a question. I mean, when I go into Starbucks or when I see the the pastries that are in your shop, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially muffins. I I make muffins like three times, probably every other week. No, if it's bananas, I freeze the bananas and have them laying around or blueberries. We're going to talk about, mm-hmm. hopefully talk about your blueberry bread uh-huh. and uh, pound cake. And, but I always wonder, how do you get, and I've never done it really, how do you get the rise out of muffins that you see often in pastry shops? <laughs> wow. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. I mean, the difference is I think really is we have good ovens. It is so hard for a home baker. Like we have commercial ovens that we actually know the temperature that it's in there. Um, we have fans, you know, we have all these, these more of the, the technique that we can actually bake it. We have, we have better usually equipment to bake it in, um, all of those things and maybe better ingredients as well, you know, than the, than the store bought. And we always get really fine ingredients. It's always been big for us is to get, highest quality we can get. So right. don't beat well, yourself like, up too much. I, and I, <laughs> thank you. I, and, and I like, I've, I've never attempted like laminated dough, like a, mm. like a croissant, like to me that, or like a phyllo uh, like baklava, baklava, baklava mm-hmm. right? You know, in tiramisu, I tend to avoid those more complex sort of layering things, but mm. I have tried um, sourdough and we can talk about that for a little bit. But first, wow. yes, yeah, so, you know, we'll, I have a little story to tell you about that. I'm not sure if you'd be impressed if you tried my sourdough. I mean, it's edible, <laughs> you know, but again, I have issues with the rise, you know, so mm. it's, you know, and sourdough is so hard to get. If you miss a step or if you're trying to rush it, you just, you will not get the rise um, mm-hmm. out of it. I spoke with Sarah Owens. She's a cookbook author and one of her cookbooks is called Sourdough. So it's just mm-hmm. loaded with, and it's really not a, it's not a beginner sourdough cookbook. Mm-hmm. It's really for people who know what they're doing already so that then you can improve and sort of mm-hmm. mix it up a little bit. And uh, I was, you know, talking to her and said, kind of asking her kind of a how-to and said, and I, and I, her interview was amazing. I love her. But I said, so Sarah, I, you know, okay, so what if I don't have an organic heritage grain in my cupboard? What am I going to do? And so we like, we had to almost stop the interview because she's like, well, you just, you're just not going to make anything like <laughs> if you don't have 
organic heritage grains because that's her big uh, thing. And uh-huh. so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, and I totally respect that, but I, you know, and, and it's piqued my interest, frankly, uh-huh. in just like you said, if you have a, maybe it's my ingredients, maybe it's mm. because I'm using this um, industrialized mm-hmm. flour, mm. which I've learned so much about because of mm-hmm. Sarah. But what's the deal with, um, have you run into this, how passionate people uh-huh. can be about using real flour and what is Mm -hmm. real flour versus Mm -hmm. what we buy from King Arthur. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a thing that is really coming out recently in the U S because we've just been so used to, um, commercial flour, uh, and, and really that came out of industrialization. Right. So why, if you kind of look back, like backtrack or even now, if you go to Europe, if any of us been fortunate to go to Europe, go to France, you're like, why are these people they're eating bread all the time? They're not fat. They look amazing. Like what is happening? And it's because they are eating heirloom, organic, real organic flour, um, amongst other things, they're eating like real, you know, grass-fed butter. Like organic is so big in in um, in Europe and they have so many regulations. Here, we don't have that same thing, right? So, um, you know, a long, long, long time back, they have cut um, wheat production so that it only needs to, they only do one type of, of wheat and they cut it too short. They don't let it grow. Um, and that's so that we can make more of it and they can make it faster. And then on top of that, you're putting it into all of these machines and that's how we're making our bread now, right? So I think that's what she's also touching on is like, we don't have this natural variety of of wheat and flour like like we used to and like what they have in, in Europe. And so we have to really try to find that now. And it's hard. It's hard. Um, it's it's more hard expensive. to find it. And it's more expensive mm-hmm. too. Spade goods are, are so different. Um, it's not... It's, it was never a push for us to use organic heirloom grains for our baked goods, um, but it does make such a big difference for the bread, for sure. So mm-hmm. I'm still learning about it all the time too. It's fascinating um, because yeah, yeah. in the US, it's just not been a thing. Um, and I think we're coming up on that. I think in the same way, you know, circling back to way earlier in our conversation, um, you know, third wave coffee being the big movement. I think that's where we're at with bread. We're at the very beginning of, of people really appreciating the difference between good bread and store-bought bread, just like they were interested in the difference between Folgers and spending a couple more bucks on a cup of coffee that right. tastes like coffee that's ethically sourced, that you know the roaster, all of that. So that's where we're at with bread too. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to have to find someone who can talk to with me about the science of like the digestion, the enzymes and the uh-huh. process, because there, you know, frankly, there's a lot of, I mean, people, we know this from going through the election and the, you know, social media has a lot of bunk and you can find you know, really false stuff out there, people making claims. And the the industry is trying to make money off of people. And Sarah makes a really good point, Sarah Owens. Um, And I'll have to to dig it up and find it for people to put it into this episode. But, you know, just that there's sort of like, oh, it's the gluten-free movement. She really came down hard on on that movement and how the, you know, corporations took advantage of people's fear. Yes. And really didn't educate them about, you know, so, no. you know, about really, well, how you can solve a gluten issue. Mm-hmm. And and I certainly want to encourage people to realize that we're not doctors here. You should talk to a doctor, of course, yeah. if you're sick. But, you know, that in some way we've been manipulated into this fad. I don't want to just call it a fad because some people seriously, you know, obviously it's a real medical issue, but there are simpler solutions um, upstream. 
Absolutely. It's such a fascinating topic and I'm sure she can speak um, uh, much better than I can about this. But um, but bread gets such a bad rep, for example, because uh, they think gluten gluten well, is bad for me. Gluten makes me fat. If you don't have celiac, if you're just like a normal person who can actually eat bread and that's not true, especially naturally leavened bread actually has all these enzymes that are good for your digestion system. What really a lot of things that have caused gluten intolerance um, from my understanding in celiac has been how we produce bread in this country. That's why you don't see it so much in France and Europe because <laughs> they don't mill, they don't produce, they don't um, eat bread the way that we do here. So it, it's, she's right. It's, it's such, it's just such a, a movement of going back to going back to how we did things for thousands and thousands of years that yeah. people were not sick you know, because down. they did it right. And they yeah. were patient. And if you learn yeah. that while making your own bread, the patience you need to have, that is just not America, capitalist, consumerist, yeah. uh, yeah. industrial, not Wall Street country. <laughs> No, no, because no one wants to wait two days to have a loaf of bread, you know. Right. But come <laughs> to find don't. out, people are interested in that weight, and and, and people mm-hmm. are getting sick and tired of mm-hmm. getting sick, right? So they yeah. they are like seeking out these recipes and finding ways to do it. My yeah. son has had um, a nut, severe nut and milk allergies, mm. and that's an ex- a great example, classic example, because he's been we've been fortunate to connect with doctors who have desensitized him. Wow. Uh, there are certain allergists out there that are that are doing this now. They've been doing it in Europe for a long time with food allergies and introducing rather than telling your patient you have to avoid this food for the rest of your life and sort of a mm-hmm. life sentence, saying, no, actually, we're going to take the risk. We're going to put, put our license on the line and practice medicine and tell you to start eating this food that has the avoidance of which has caused the sickness. Mm. And so he's been free of peanut allergies, free of dairy allergies, and now we're working on all the tree nuts. And so that's it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. I've never heard of that before. That's so yep. cool. Yep. And it's, how much uh, is that going to change his life? I just can't imagine. Yep, it's, all, like, it's, it's, I was in tears when this, you know, and wow. I, I, I want to interview this doctor as well sometime because I know it touches the lives in profound ways of so many people. Um, because you, you first of all, are anxious all the time about food, and and what's. I mean, food is the last thing we want to be anxious about. I'm doing, just recorded an episode with uh, a woman who wrote a book about eating disorders, but that's, you know, food can take on such a kind of a battleground uh, state in our psyche because it is such a common thing, you know, way in which we either soothe ourselves or, you know, or frankly punish ourselves. And like she was talking about, you know, the, the way in which food, um, you know, whole whole eating can can be w- really wonderful, and it's it's kind of past due time for us to be doing that in this country. But also, it can take on uh, a sort of compulsive, you know, bent to it. If, if like you won't eat unless you get that granola bar across, you know, but you have to drive ten miles to get it. Like, or you know, you're not, not going to bake bread unless you have a certain kind of flour. Well, wait a minute, like, where can you live a whole life and still be kind to yourself and do the best, and also still try to Wow. Make improvements. Great. So interesting. It's so, it's, I I can't wait to listen to that episode. And we've always believed that, right? It's all about balance. Yes, we're selling sweets. We're selling like, (laughs) but like we are, you know, baked joint, I think is a really good example. We're doing the naturally leavened bread, um, but we're putting, you know, we're making delicious, we have like cheese, you know, we have, we're getting organic eggs. You can still have Mm -hmm. like these yummy foods that taste good and balance it with, you know, good bread, you know, and that's just how we, right. as a family, we eat, we eat right. life is right. balanced for us. Um, and you know, we're, we're happy. <laughs> right. 
What's your favorite loaf of bread to grab from your store? I've got your, I've got your oh. menu here and you've got a lot of different breads. You've got obviously Oof. the multi-grain, the baguette, mm-hmm. the, the country sourdough, uh, cinnamon raisin walnut sourdough. That sounds amazing. Wow. I mean, all of our breads serve such a different purpose depending on what I want to eat. But if I'm just going to like rip it, open it, it's it's going to just be the country sourdough. It's the mm. straight up sourdough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent so much time tinkering with that and um, making the, it the right sour taste, making it the right crunch um, on the outside, making it the right crumb on the inside. So I love that. Um I also love our pandemi, which is like our version of, uh, I grew up on Wonder Bread, if you can believe it. And, um, as most reasons, and it's delicious. You know, let's just not beat around the bush. Wonder Bread is delicious. So it's Fluffy. our version of, yes, it's our version of a Wonder Bread. It's, it's pandemi, what the French call it. It's a white fluffy bread. I think that's what um, I had. I had, had some peanut butter this afternoon. It was amazing. Yes, exactly. Put some peanut butter on it or, we do our best selling sandwich at, at joint and we have so many different types of sandwiches. It's funny enough, just the BLT and it's done on this bread. And I think that's where the bread really shines. You're having just the bacon, lettuce, tomato, but you're having mm. on the really yummy bread. And mm. um, I love that bread as a sandwich bread. Um, yeah, those are probably my two, two go-tos I'd say. It's it was really delicious, and let me just talk about the quiche for a second. So I I got the talk about it. The, the ham and cheese. Um, mm-hmm. You you have to tell me again what that what it is. It's Gruyere, the, Gruyere. Yeah. I took yes. French, and I should know yeah. the ham and <laughs> the ham and Gruyere. Ham and cheese works too. Yeah, ham and that's cheese, what it is. but yeah, your the crust. So you know, I get the the whole mm-hmm. um, quiche, and you know, it's not in a pie tin. It's mm-hmm. just you know, the crust is is thick enough that it's holding itself together. Mm-hmm. That's that was amazing, really good. Yeah, I love our quiche. We actually do the same dough with that as we do our pie dough, and our our pies are definitely famous during Thanksgiving. Um, it was actually, you know, originally what my mom was going to do with baked and wired was was make pies, and that's it because that's what she grew up making. Um, that's a family recipe that that recipe was used for a pie dough, and it kind of evolved into doing offering more things. But with the quiche, that's the same dough we use, and we do we don't bake it in a pie dish. We do all of our pies in a glass Pyrex dish. Um, but this we do more of like a traditional metal like tart pan. Um, so you're really getting those nice crunchy edges in there. Um, and just load it up with a with cheese and ham and onion and I'm, it just I melted. It was like, you know, I just heated that up a little bit. It just melted and it was delicious. But, oh, we have to talk about your your lemon blueby pound cake. You've invented a word here. I'm interested in the story <laughs> because um and you'll have to tell people people about your your blog, um, where you write and some of these recipes. Sure. Um got the recipe. Let me get this out here. But lemon blueby pound cake. So can yeah. you walk us through this? I mean it's you know you don't have to walk us through the whole thing, but just sort of generally overview and then people can sure. check this out. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Something I actually started in the fall was my own newsletter called the Sobra Mesa. Um Sober Mesa is a Spanish term for the time spent uh, at the dinner table. And there's not really, it's untranslatable. It's kind of this essence of, of, I think we can all relate to when you have a meal, you have your family, you have your friends, you know, you have your, your partner there and you, you finish eating and you're just hanging out the table and you're talking. That's when the best conversations are happening. That's when the, the jokes are made. Um, that's when you're just sitting there getting into some interesting topic. Um, and so I wanted to do a newsletter, especially during COVID, kind of relating this idea of food and human connection. Um, and so growing up, you know, in this, in this world, you know, I have all these 
recipes under my belt. But like I was saying, you know, it's just so fun this year for me to really get in the kitchen and tinker and make them a little bit my own. So we've we've used uh, we have tons of pound cakes at Baked and Wired. So I have the basic pound cake recipe that my mom actually started with that she has substituted and made all of her different pound cakes with just based on this one basic recipe. So I took that and we do a lemon blueberry one as well, but I tinkered with it to make it my own a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the baked fashion, I like to rename it, make it fun, make it silly. You know, how boring is lemon blueberry pound cake? You know, can we make it a little bit more fun to talk about and read and kind of make you smile? So it's a fun word to say. Um, yeah, it's just fun to say. It's fun to eat and. I love this pound cake because I actually love, of all the sweets I'm around, I actually tend to like things that are a little less sweet. Um, so I like the pound cakes more. You know, I like muffins. I like uh, croissants. I like those sort of things a little bit more actually than cupcakes, than brownies. I don't have that intense sweet tooth. So I love these kind of cakes because they're more breakfasty. There's something I can have for breakfast or for dessert or mm. with my afternoon coffee. Um, and uh, yeah, I made this, you know, I was fortunate enough to get away and go to Maine for a week and they're known for their blueberries. And I had all these blueberries on my hand. I didn't know what to do with it. And so I made a lemon blueberry pound cake with it. I took my mom's basic pound cake recipe and I just kind of mm-hmm. played with it from there. And I made a lemon frosting and because I was mm-hmm. serving it for after dinner, um, but it's also still so good, you know, with breakfast and um, sour cream. With so it. that's going to keep it very moist, I imagine. Exactly. So it's a very traditional pound cake where you're using sour cream as the the moist and it really adds, uh, you don't taste really the sour, but it really offsets the sugar in that way. Um, and I was using nice main wild blueberries, which are the little ones. Um, and yeah, I love that recipe too. Thanks for thanks for checking it out. Yeah, people should definitely check out your blog and look at all the recipes that are there. I think that's one of the pastimes people are clearly into because it's mm-hmm. you, it's been so fun. You can see it on Pinterest or Facebook. Yeah. People sharing recipes and people talking about what they're doing with this time. Tessa Velasquez, uh, your family, is, you're a co-owner with your family of Baked and Wired and uh, the other stores, La Betty and A Baked Joint in downtown Washington, D.C. Great to have you on The Soul of Life. I mean, I love your oh, attitude. And you. it's just, you know, great. That's what this is about, bringing people together mm-hmm. who have soul and are doing their work and finding some soul uh, energy in mm. in the, the the grind, literally, the, in your case, the coffee grind. The right? coffee so, grind, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. I love it. Oh, and, uh, thank really you, Keith. Thanks for having me, and and thanks for sure doing thing. this and getting getting the voice out there. It's uh, we all need a little uplifting right now, so it's yeah. Great. Thank yeah, you. It's been welcome. an honor. Thanks for listening to the Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening, so that others like you may find the Soul of Life. I mean. Really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. Pumpkin damn spice.